Be seated. We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. As we continue our studies in the book of Assurance, 1 John, chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning, but I will begin reading at chapter 4, verse 20 to set the context. So 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful again for the privilege it is to be called the children of God. And we are thankful that in time and space, by the application of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit, you did show us our need for Christ. You are the one who made us born again. And we are thankful that the Spirit does work, the Spirit does change, the Spirit does give new hearts, and those whom you change believe. And we're thankful that you do make your people willing in the day of your power. And so thank you for the gift it is to be called children of God and the gift it is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the Christ. Thank you that he is the Messiah. He is the one promised in the Old Testament and he is the one who brings the salvation that we need. And we're thankful that he who is the uh, Messiah is also he who is God. Thank you that he is the son of God who took on a human nature. Thank you that he took on human flesh to die upon that cross for undeserving sinners like us. Thank you that we see your love in this. Thank you that we see your mercy in this. Thank you for this blessed gospel that Christ lived, died, and rose again. And we're thankful for the blessing it is to believe upon him and find mercy and forgiveness. And we ask and pray as your people who have been changed, who have uh, the, the knowledge of Christ's work for us, help us also to be reminded of Christ's work in us. As we are children of God, help us to honor and glorify you according to your ways. Help us to keep your commandments. Help us to live in a way that is pleasing unto you. Help us by your spirit to do this. And we pray and ask, first of all, that you'd help us to have a right understanding of your commandments. Help us to understand its place. Help us to understand what your word says concerning them, that we might be aware, that we might be aware of our own uh, remaining corruption, might be aware of making man-made laws and rather than recognizing your laws. Please forgive us for the times we burden other people with our own laws, but help us to recognize where salvation comes from. Thank you that we have this in Christ Jesus. We pray that your saints would be encouraged today. We pray that if we need to be rebuked, that you would rebuke us today. If we need to be uplifted, please uplift us today. We pray if we need to be strengthened, strengthen us today. If there are any here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save them. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. 
And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, throughout the centuries and throughout the ages, there's always been the problem of man-made commandments and man-made laws. And there are many reasons why I despise them as it pertains to religion, as it pertains to Christianity. And one of the main reasons is because they become burdensome. They weigh the people of God down. They weigh people down in general. They weigh people down as it pertains to how they earn salvation or how they find salvation. But even in our Christian walk as well, sometimes we can be the Pope. Sometimes we can act like the Pope in the lives of other people. And there are many examples of this in history. One being the Pharisees. They weighed others down by their man-made laws. They weighed others down by saying you have to be saved by keeping the law. And not necessarily the law of God, but their own man-made laws. Here's what you have to do. Here's salvation. You have to do it according to our ways. And there is a pro, there's something, another example that we see in the book of 1 John. We have what are called the pre-Gnostics, these ones who corrupted Christianity, who taught that you had to be saved by a special experience. So what happens if you don't have this type of experience? What happens if you don't have this specific way of knowing God or know God in this specific way? Well, then that could weigh someone down. And so John is reminding his hearers and he's reminding us that our works or experiences do not provide salvation. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our experiences. And those things do not overcome the world. The only way to find assurance, the only way to overcome, the only way to be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ. That is where our assurance lies. We look to Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And remember, this whole book is all about assurance. It is the book of assurance. He writes, and we see the main thesis in chapter 5, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have assurance, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. And throughout, he's given us various tests, various affirmations of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, the whole book is structured like a sermon. We see the introduction in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Then the first point of his sermon, the first test, is how we live in the light as children of the light. And then we're in the section still that deals with living as children of God, which ends at chapter 5, verse 13. Then we go into a nice epilogue. So we're still in that section, how we live as the children of God. And he spent a lot of time talking about love, what love means, what love looks like, And he continues that discussion here for us at the beginning of chapter 5. And there's a lot of blessed movement, a lot of blessed theology that we see throughout this chapter and throughout the preceding chapter that talk about and describe and define for us what love is. We see the love of the triune God when it comes to the plan of redemption. We see the love of the Son who came and took on human flesh and accomplished the salvation that we need. And we also see the love of God in the application, how he works in us, how we love God, how we love this one who first loved us. And we see his love working in us by our faith, but also the evidence of our faith in our love for other people, in our keeping his commandments as a test and evidence that we are saved, a test and evidence that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's why he can say that his commandments are not burdensome. Because that is the key problem, isn't it, that we see in these verses. Burdensome 
commandments. This is the problem that arises with the legalist, the one who says salvation is by way of works. It also arises with the moralist who takes their laws, man-made laws, and makes them God's law. And if you are like me, we generally loathe legalism and moralism. We try to understand the proper understanding of the commandments because we must also beware of the own pope in our own bosom. Even for the people of God, even for the Christian, we sometimes often have our own preferences and ideas and we make them God's law rather than recognizing what God has defined in the scriptures. This is the problem for every Christian that we need to be aware of. There's the problem of antinomianism, living licentiously, living in a way that is not pleasing to God and excusing sin. But there's also the problem of legalism, adding and heaping too much upon the people of God. That's why we need clarity regarding God's word and his commandments so we do not overstep our bounds and burden people with man-made laws. That's what these uh, false teachers were doing. That's what many have done throughout the ages, and I'm sure many will continue to do uh, as the centuries continue to pass on. But thankfully, we have a reminder here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5 of where our faith lies, where our assurance lies, and how we overcome these burdensome commandments and burdensome teachers. Well, we overcome in Christ. We overcome by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, John is reminding the children of God that they overcome the world by faith in Jesus Christ. Not in what these heretics are saying, but in Jesus Christ. And we'll look at this victory in Christ under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see children who believe, verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, we'll see children who overcome in verses 4 and 5. How do we overcome? How do we, uh, where's our assurance? Well, children of God believe, verses 1 through 3, and children of God overcome, verses 4 and 5. So let's first look at children who believe in verses 1 through 3, and notice in verse 1a, we see children who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now again, he's dealing with the idea of love. We see love is the essence of God. God is love. God's love is infinite. God's love is immutable. God's love cannot be measured. Our love is a quality that we may or may not have. God is love. God's love does not increase or decrease. Unfortunately, ours waxes and wanes. That's why we must uh, glory in God's love that it does not wax or wane. He is love. And because we cannot comprehend God in his essence, the way in which we see God is by way of what he does, what he does for this world, specifically in the salvation of sinners. We see his love for us in the work of the son. And thankfully, the son came to live, die and rose again. He purchases for us benefits that the spirit then applies for us in our lives. And we talked about that perfection. The love of God has been perfected in us. The work that he does in us is perfected on that final day when we do not need to fear because we have been loved by God. We love him because he first loved us. Then he goes on to talk about the claims of the false teachers. Verse 20 of chapter four. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If we say we love God, we must love the things that God loves. 
And he's going on to further explain for us what this means. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You cannot say you love God and hate the people of God. You cannot say you love God and hate the church. Because the way in which we manifest our love for God is in our love for one another. And he goes on to to unpack this in verse 1. When he talks about, first of all, our faith. Whoever, verse 1, believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He's giving a general statement. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Well, John has often spoke about the importance of the commandments, and he will continue to do so here. The main thing is faith. Our salvation lies in Christ Jesus and our faith in him. Theologians in the past have distinguished between the act of faith, that is, our actually believing something to be true, and the object of our faith. Faith is never nebulous. It drives me nuts when people just say, you just need to have a little faith. Little faith in what? Little faith in something? Little faith in something outside themselves? Little faith in me? It needs to be faith in something, and namely someone outside of ourselves. That's the object of our faith. And when we believe, we believe in the object, namely Jesus Christ. What do we believe about him? What do we desire about him? What do we believe to be true concerning him? Well, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah of old. You either accept that or you reject that very statement. The false teachers rejected it. The false teachers denied it. Many throughout history have denied this very thing, that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. But as we've seen, especially in 1 John 2 and 1 John 4, but in 1 John 2, who is a liar? A liar is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Who is Antichrist? He who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Who is Antichrist? Who denies the Father and the Son? That's why what someone says about Jesus Christ is absolutely vital and important. Here is Jesus. Here is the one who is the Son of God, and he is the Christ. All the law and the prophets point to him. That we see throughout the book, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the whole Bible, the whole book of God pointing to him, the Messiah who would come to save his people, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one who would be David's greater son, the one who would be that one who delivers his people, the one who would be that servant who would come to save his people from their sins. And that is Jesus. These heretics reject it. The Pharisees rejected it. Will you reject it? Or will you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And notice too, this stuff is very creedal. You see, throughout the Bible, we see kind of uh, mini creeds. Creeds are things that must be believed. We have a confession of faith that's just a long statement of faith. Confessions teach us what must or ought to be believed. There are things within the confession that you don't have to believe to be saved, but within the confession are the creeds, the things that must be believed. And you must believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so perhaps it could be that one of the first creeds in the early church is Jesus is the Christ. As the theology was handed down and passed down, Jesus is the Christ. We see in the Old Testament, they have a creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised in the early church and in the first three, four centuries of the church, the church had this creedal imperative to define what is true, define what must be believed. Uh, And there are other examples of creeds in the Bible as well. But Jesus is the Christ, is one of them. Whoever believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is the Christ will be saved. And so whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, so it's this faith in Jesus Christ, notice what precedes faith. He whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. If you can say that Jesus is Lord, it is a sign and assurance that you have, been, you have received the new birth. In our Christian walk, in our, or in, our, in our life, as we are saved, what has to happen before we believe is we must have a new heart. It's what we call regeneration. Faith is an evidence and an outworking of regeneration or effectual calling. You cannot accept, receive, and rest on Christ unless there's been a supernatural birth within you. That cannot happen. You cannot believe unless there's been a change of heart. You cannot believe unless you have been made willing in the day of God's power. You see, even as Reformed folk, we're not against the idea of free will. The idea of free will, and nobody denies that we are free from compulsion. That's what free means. This does, the will is the seat of the desire, seat of ch- the place where we choose, that we see, we see something with our minds, we assess it, we judge that, and we either accept that thing or reject that very thing. And the only way to accept and believe on Christ is if we've been changed first. That's what the debates are, by the way, between Calvinists and Arminians. They're not denying the endowment of a free will, free from compulsion. But they're distinguishing and talking about whether or not someone can choose that which is spiritually good in their sinful state. And the answer to that question is no. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. That's why we need a new heart. That's why we need Ezekiel 36. That's why we need the spirit to work in our hearts with the word that we might be made willing in the day of God's power. That's why faith is also called a gift. It's not our working, but it's God who works in us to show us our sin, show us our need for Christ that we might believe upon him. We've seen this throughout the book of 1 John. We've seen it in John's gospel John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 talking about being born again. One must be born again. One must be born of God. One must be birthed supernaturally by the Spirit that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You don't come to the front and believe and are born again. The only way you believe is because you have been born again. Only God can do that. Only God can save. Only God can give a new heart. Now he is pleased to work with the word as the word goes forth. That's why it's effectually calling. I call you to believe on Christ. And we pray that the spirit would work in your heart to save you and give new life. That is how salvation works. So regeneration, effectual calling precedes faith. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and if you have then been born of God, you ought also to love others who have been born of God. That's what he goes on to say. The outworking of our faith, the evidence of our faith, 
the assurance of our salvation is seen in our love for others. Not the means by which we are saved, but the assurance that we have. Everyone who loves him who begot, talking about God. If you love him who begot, if you love God, if you say you love God, also loves him who is begotten of him. If you say you love God, if you're a child of God, then you also love his other children as well. And you see the flow of the argument. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. If you've been born of God, you also love those who have been born of God as well. Now, some highlight that it could refer to Jesus Christ. Certainly, we who love the Father also love the Son as well. And we know that the the Son is the eternally begotten one of the Father. We see that in chapter 4. But certainly here, if we love the Father and we love the Son, we also love those who have been born of God and those for whom Christ has died. If you claim to love God, you must love these ones as well. If Christ died for you, if Christ has forgiven you, you ought to forgive others. God has been gracious and good, but Christ has also died for other sheep. Christ has also died for other people. And he loves them just as he loves you, and you must also love them as an outworking of our faith. And let's be honest, if we were to summarize what the Christian life is, it is to imitate our elder brother. There are many images used to describe Christ Jesus in the Bible, and one is our elder brother. In Romans chapter 8, he is called the what? The firstborn among many brethren. He certainly is our bridegroom, and we are his bride, but he loves his bride, just like hopefully grooms love their brides, but also he is our brother and gives us, and he is um, firstborn among many brethren. What does he do in his life? He loves. What does he do in his, in his time on earth? He cares and he demonstrates and he shows, does good towards those uh, who, whom he will die for. The point is there should be no sibling rivalry in the household of God. It's kind of unfortunate, isn't it? There's remaining corruption. We can be, have rivalry and envy and that sort of thing. We have to ask God to help us to put to death Uh, those desires and those thoughts, but there really should be sibling love rather than sibling rivalry. If you say you are of God, if you say I love God, if you believed on Christ and have been born of God, then you ought to love those whom he has begotten and have been begotten of him. So we love God, we believe in Christ, we're born of God, and we also love those who have been begotten by God as well. And then he goes on to talk about how we do that in verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So we love God by loving the children of God, and we love the children of God by loving God. Verse 2, by this we know, so we have that assurance that we love the children of God when, how can we have that assurance when we love God and keep his commandments. He's talking about our love to God. God certainly loves us. We see that in verse 19. We've seen that uh, in verses 7 through 16 as well. We love him because he first loved us, but now it's our love to God and our love to others. Persons who wish to do what is pleasing to God, persons who wish to be like their father, like their elder brother, wishing to do what is honoring to them. Now, we need clarity. What is it that God loves? What is it that 
uh, uh, is honoring and pleasing to him. Well, we love God. We love the children of God. We love those who are his. But we also love God, and we love God according to his commandments. That's how we love God, dear brethren. That's how we do good towards God. Not that God needs anything from us, but God has given us clarity. As the children of God who have been saved, here is how you love me. Honor me, love me, and love your neighbor, specifically your brother. Notice Christians are specifically in view here. I'm not saying we don't love those outside of Christ, but the main thrust and focus is primarily the people of God, primarily those whom have been begotten of God. That's why it's important to know that. That's why it's important to gather that we might love one another by, uh, by not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. We must love others in according to what God has said. We love God and we keep his commandments. Now, his commandments, he is defined throughout this book. He's talked about it often throughout this book. And again, we always try to explain. I always feel like I have to explain myself. But commandments are not the way in which we are saved. Our keeping of the commandments, that's not the way in which we are saved. We are saved by Christ keeping the commandments, Christ keeping them perfectly and dying as that perfect sacrifice and believing upon him. But just as he loved, just as he lived and we are in him, and we've been saved by him, should we not then honor and glorify God according to his commandments? We keep his commandments. Not man's commandments, but we keep his commandments. Assurance and requirement. Uh, we know, assured, and required is required, we keep his commandments. And he goes on to further explain that in verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So how do you love God? We've gone through this before, haven't we? We've talked about the importance of the moral law, the importance of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And again, what does Jesus do? He loves by what? Well, by sacrifice, but also by keeping the commandments. So how do we love? How do we love God? How do we love others? We love others by keeping God's commandments. Now, there is a problem and there's an assurance, but there's a problem behind the assurance in verse 3. And his commandments are not burdensome. The implication seems to be that there are commandments that are burdensome. And the problem that we see in the, the, the burdensome commandments are man's commandments. Man's commandments when it comes to salvation and man's commandments that go outside the bounds of scripture. A similar word is used in Matthew 23 to talk about the Pharisees and the heavy burden that they place upon people. Brethren, when one is not in Christ, sin is a burden. Sin weighs someone down and here comes the legalists and they weigh people down all the more. We see this in Pilgrim's progress. When Pilgrim is concerned, he's, uh, the Christian is concerned, he's fearful. What do I do? I got this burden on my back. How do I get rid of it? I mean, there are many different temptations. There's moralism. There's this. There's that. But he finds relief where? In the cross of Christ. Only in Jesus Christ can that burden be lifted. And again, these teachers, these heretics were saying, you must be saved by a secret, special knowledge. Only the elite have. What if you never get that? What if you never have that experience? What if you never uh, see into the things of God like they do? 
One would be burdened and weighed down. That's why we say to be, be saved, look to Jesus Christ. And so the Pharisees are good examples. We see this in Matthew 23. But we must also all beware of making man's law God's law, even in our Christian walk. And this is, again, where we all have that pope in our own bosom that we have to be careful of, dear brother. I have it, you have it, we just need to admit it. We must understand that and recognize that and have God help us to see what is a preference and what is law. That's why I'm thankful for the commandments, the Ten Commandments, to help me understand and help you understand what it is that is pleasing to God. Because we often walk in without realizing it with that big Pope hat into the lives of other people. See, brother, I'm not against preferences. You can have preferences. The problem is when you act, when I act like that Pope into someone in someone's life. There are many examples of this throughout history, many examples of it today. Uh, there's, there's certainly food laws, whether you eat meat or not. It doesn't matter. If you want to have meat, you want to have, don't want to have meat, that's fine. You just, if you want to eat meat, you can't look to the person who's a vegetarian and go, you really should eat meat. You can't be like that. There are others as well, holidays that are celebrated. <laughs> the one, the uh, Christian day that has been set apart in the Bible is what? The Lord's Day Gathering. All the other stuff, yes, can be used for evangelism, etc., but it's not commanded, is it? So there's Christian liberty. That's why Christian liberty is vital and important. We are free in Christ Jesus. We're free from the curse of the law. We are free uh, from the requirements of the law, the exacting nature of the law. We're also free from man-made commandments. We're not free to live any way we want, but we're free from man's commandments. Others, certain forms of entertainment that are not sinful, People get their knickers in a knot over that sort of thing. The outworking of the Lord's Day. Brethren, the Lord's Day is a blessed time that has been set apart for the people of God, but sometimes we can be very pharisaical with it. Other things, the use of modern medicine. I don't care if you go to a naturopath. I don't care if you go to a, 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 a real doctor. A naturopaths are real. No, naturopaths are real doctors too. Sorry, I didn't mean to say it like that. I was just trying to explain the difference between them too. So... Any sort of doctor or medicine, you know, uh, types of medicine, that's your prerogative. If you want to think through that, you need some help, that's perfectly fine. School. School, dear brethren. I know there's issues. I know there's problems. I know there's concerns with the public school. But not everybody can afford Christian school. Not everybody can afford to homeschool either. That's the problem, isn't it? it the, the problem is not so much those things. People have to decide in their families what school's best, that sort of thing. But it's when we impose, isn't it? Oh, look at all those problems in that public school. You should really get your kid out of there. Not considering the family situation or the other situation. Oh, kids are homeschooled. They're kind of a little different sometimes, depending on what you think about that. Are, you really, are they going to be able to evangelize? To be, uh, there's all sorts of weird ideas, right? You see, brethren, how we can be that pope in our own bosom and how we can impose upon other people. That's why we have to be very careful. That's why I'm very, I get passionate about it because it drives me nuts. It drives me nuts because I know that it's within me as well. And I want to make sure we don't have spats over these things, dear brethren. Recognize the differences. Recognize what's a preference and then appreciate what the law of God says. The place of God's law. We talk about the normative use of the law, the normative use of the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. They're in Romans 13 with how you ought to live. 
there in Galatians chapter 5 with how you ought to live. And we do so according to the new covenant way, not the old covenant way. That's why it's the moral law that abides. The moral law transcends covenant. But there are certain laws under the Old Testament that were for that time. The ceremonial laws, you can have steak or not. That's perfectly fine. You can enjoy that or not enjoy that. Whatever, you know, is your prerogative, whatever you wish to do. But we're not bound by the Old Covenant anymore. We're not bound by those ceremonial laws. They are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And the civil laws as well, for Israel as a body politic, they can get application, but they do not, they're not exacting uh, like they once were. And so when we understand the place of God's law, when we understand the place of it as a pattern for life, it is not legalism, nor is it moralism for me, the pastor, to exhort the people of God in the commandments of God, if I root it in the, in the truth of Christ. If you believed upon Christ, if you've been saved by him, if he's died for you, if he's worked in you by the Holy Spirit, then you ought to honor and glorify him according to his ways. You ought to put away your idols. You ought to worship God acceptably and aright. No puppets, ponies, and programs. You ought to have a right demeanor as we enter into the household of God and worship him and glorify him. And even the fourth commandment, the fourth commandment as it pertains to gathering for worship. I am perfectly within my authority and my bounds to say that you ought to set apart the Lord's Day gathering. You ought to set it apart for rest and for worship. I'm not outside my bounds to encourage you to come to the evening service. We'd like, certainly, I'm not without, outside my bounds to encourage you to come to prayer in the morning. I'm not outside my bounds with that, am I? Because that's what God has said in his word. God has said we ought to gather, we ought to pray, we ought to be with the people of God. Now, you all know as far as you know, membership, we require members to at least attend, attend one service. But please, we encourage all to come to both or come to prayer or if you live far away, at least turn on and tune in. Is that so hard to do these days, dear brethren? God has given us, and it's, it's for our good, isn't it? To gather, to rest. And some people might be saying, but Mike, the fourth commandment is not commanded in the New Testament. Well, I would beg to differ. I think Hebrews 4.9 says there still remains a Sabbath rest for God's people, but we do so in a new covenant way. We come to heaven. We come to new creation. There's blessed theology there. And if people really want an express command, let me tell you something. It is not expressly commanded in Genesis, is it? You know what else isn't expressly commanded in Genesis? Do not murder or do not commit adultery. Does that mean it does not abide? No, because we have the law of God written on our hearts. That's why when Cain murdered Abel, it violates the commandment of God. That's why uh, when we see adultery, it violates the commandments of God. There's a specific revelation of it for Israel as a nation at Sinai, but that doesn't mean the law of God, God is not in operation. It can either be uh, expressed or necessarily contained in the scriptures. And so certainly the fourth commandment does abide, but it abides it as a new covenant sort of, uh, not sort of, a new covenant expression of it in this time. That is gathering to worship God on his day. We set apart, it's holy, but the things we typically do for work the other days, we don't do this day. 
And it is a blessing just to think about God on these days. And if you struggle with reading because there's only so much time in the week and you're working hard, there's a day for you to read and study and pray and be before our God. So it is a blessing. We want it to be a time of joy, time of gathering, not burdensome, but a time of blessing. It's meant to be that very thing, a blessing for the people of God. Because all this is meant to be an outworking of our faith. And the outworking of our faith assures us we are born of God. We live by the power of the Spirit and according to the Word of God. I think there are two very good places in the New Testament that help us distinguish between man's law and God's law. Uh, You can turn to Galatians 5, but as you're turning to Galatians 5, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, 19, where Paul says, Circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But keeping the commandments of God is everything. Circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything, but keeping the commandments of God is everything. So he's distinguishing. If someone wishes to be circumcised for cultural reasons, that's perfectly fine. If someone does not want to be circumcised for whatever reason, that is perfectly fine as well. But in Galatians 5, remember Galatians, he hammers home the importance of the gospel against men who said you are saved by keeping the law. But then he still yet talks about liberty, and he still yet talks about the law here, but he does so in its proper sphere. The liberty we have in Christ, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, that is, with the law. He goes on to say in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. That is, keeping the commandments of God. He also says something similar in verse 15 of chapter 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. If you're of the new creation, if you're a new creation in Christ Jesus, then we ought to love one another as the new creation people and worship according to the new creation way, which is the new covenant. And he goes on to talk about in chapter 5, verses 7, through 15, the fulfillment of the law, what that looks like. And he talks about, he warns against licentiousness, warns against just living any ways you sort of want to in verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And so the law gives us clarity. He goes on to talk about how we walk by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. We have crucified to the deeds of the flesh. We live in the Spirit. Let us walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we walk according to God's ways. God's law is not meant to crush us when we are freed of it in Christ, but it's meant to be a guide. And if Christ has loved us, and if the Father has loved us, and if typically if someone who loves you and you love asks you to do something... Is it really burdensome? If someone loves you and asks you to do something for them, should it be burdensome? Or should we just be willing to do it because we love them? God loved us and we love him because he first loved us and his commandments should not be burdensome to us because children who believe are children who love God by faith and love God as we keep his commandments. So that's children who believe. 
Don't worry, point two is going to be shorter than point one. Point two is children who overcome, verses four and five. Children who believe and children who overcome. We'll see children who overcome in verses 4 and 5. And notice we see children overcome the world in verse 4a. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Again, the children of God are still in view. Those born of God. And notice what we overcome is we overcome the world. Now what does the world mean here? Can sometimes refer to the place we live. Sometimes refer to Gentiles. If you were a Jew, the world refers to Gentiles. But sometimes it can refer to the sinful conduct of this world. I think that is in view here. I think that is in view here in relation to false teachers who promote sin, false teachers who promote burdensome commandments. And also in view here is Satan who is behind them. We've already seen this language of overcoming in chapter 2. We've seen that I have written to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. You have overcome the wicked one. And we see Christ has overcome him in chapter one, or chapter three, verse eight. But then we see again this overcoming. There's the problem of antichrists in the world. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ or Jesus is the son of God, our antichrist. But he says in verse four of chapter four, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we've overcome the devil, we've overcome the heretic, heretical preachers, and we've overcome the heretical teaching that is sinful. And so perhaps what is in view here is what we see in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. Don't love the world. He goes on to describe what the world is in 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have overcome all of these things. Gill says it refers to the God of the world, Satan, the lusts which are in the world, false prophets, gone forth into the world, and the wicked men of the world, who by temptations, snares, evil doctrines, threatenings, promises, and ill examples, would avert regenerate ones from observing the commands of God. But such are more than conquerors over all these through Christ that has loved them. Here come these men with these burdensome commandments, these men who weigh down, you have overcome them in Christ Jesus. You have remaining corruption, remaining sin, you have overcome that in Christ Jesus. That is where he's directing our attention. And he goes on to describe this in verse four and five. We come back around to where we started, it's faith. And this is the victory this is the triumph that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It is our faith that is victorious. And it's not the act of our faith, it's once again the object of our faith. The overcoming that we have from the, uh, over the world comes in Christ Jesus, the one whom we look toward. We see who, he who, is, uh, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Not only do we believe the gospel, which is, is, his, is his work, but we believe in he who did that work. He who lived, died, and rose again is the one who is God. And John does say in John 20, you must believe in the Son of God, that he truly is God. And it is the one who truly is God is the one who is truly man as well as he lives, dies, and rises again. 
That is how we overcome. Faith in Christ. This is the main point of Hebrews 11. That hall of faith, they're not looking at you. Those men in that hall of faith are not looking at you. Who are they looking at, brethren? They are looking to Christ. And that's why he drives the point, the writer drives to Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That is how we overcome. That is where our strength lies. This is the point of what John is saying. These false teachers are averting your attention, are averting their attention away from Jesus Christ by denying that he is the Christ and by denying that he is the Son of God because that does come up again. They deny that Jesus is the Son of God. They deny the Father and the Son, 1 John 2 and 1 John 4. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh and anyone who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. He is highlighting what we believe and highlighting where our assurance lies and highlighting how we overcome, and it is in Christ. What does Peter confess? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is because of this Son, who is God, who is the word of life, that we are born of God, and that we believe in him, and that we can have assurance. Our victory is in the object of our faith. Now, why is this encouraging? You and I still live in the present evil age, don't we? There are things that assail us from every side. We've seen the three things we overcome. The devil, he does still prowl around like a roaring lion. He is not everywhere present. He's not omniscient. But yet, nonetheless, he is still a fallen angel and is a formidable foe. But he's on a leash. Christ has triumphed. Christ has crushed his head. Christ has destroyed the works of the evil one. 1 John chapter 3. And so we have the devil we have to deal with. But then we also have false teachers we have to deal with, right? Here come men who might sound nice, might look good. They might have a nice air about them. They don't smell of sulfur. They don't have pitchforks or giant tails and horns on their head. They look fine. They look good. They look great. But then what do they say about Jesus? They deny that Jesus is the Christ. They deny that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's how you have relationship with God. Here is your experience. That is where they are, what they are emphasizing. So we have these things that assail us. Then we have our own remaining corruption, right? We have the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the, we have all those things that we still have to deal with. So what's an assuring and encouraging thing? That we have victory in Christ Jesus. Brethren, we have victory in Christ Jesus, and the victory is sure and true now, isn't it? We must remember that. We walk this world triumphant in Christ. That is the whole point of the book of Revelation. Not about helicopters, not about... It's about Christ and his present reign, and the encouragement that that brings for a herding and church that is going through the tribulation. That is where our encouragement lies, dear brethren. It's in Christ we find our hope. I love hymn 81, stanza 2, a mighty fortress. But stanza 2 goes, Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must and has won the battle. And then the next line goes, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, 
we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That is the encouragement that John is highlighting for us. We struggle with sin. We see issues with this world. We see problems in this present age. There's the devil, there's the world, there's the flesh, and yet there is Christ. Christ reigning. Christ our king. Christ on the throne. And if we are in Christ Jesus, we have triumphed in him and will triumph when he comes again. That is where our victory lies, not in the overthrowing of the government or creating a Christian nation, but it lies in Jesus Christ. And that should give us comfort when a certain temptation begins to assail us. That should give us help and aid when a certain uh, influence of the world comes in. That should help us when we are tempted by the devil. Christ is victorious. These are present tenses. This is the victory which has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you're an unbeliever here today, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ and is the Son of God. Believe upon him. Look to him and you will be saved. Will you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Son of God. For this is where salvation lies. And it's only in him that your burden of sin can be lifted from you. Look to Christ and you shall be saved. And if you are in Christ, be assured of the victory that you have in Christ Jesus. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your love for us, and we're thankful that we see your love for us in the work of the Son. Thank you that we see the outworking of your love for us uh, as your Spirit applies the benefits that Christ has purchased in our Christian walk. Thank you that we have new hearts. Thank you that we do, by your Spirit, desire those good things, yet still tainted with sin. And we are thankful that you see us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we pray that we would not... uh, make excuses for sin, but we pray that when we do sin, we would confess it for you are faithful and just to forgive us. And we pray that we would not be legalistic as well, that we would not uh, have a wrong view of your law, but have a proper understanding of its place, what it means, what it means as it pertains to salvation, what it means as it pertains to our Christian life. Thank you that you give us clarity in your word with what is pleasing to you and with how we ought to live in this present age. And we're thankful that as we still have struggles and trials and difficulties and pains and sorrows, that we are victorious in Christ. He is the one who triumphed. He is the one who reigns supreme. He is the one who has uh, won the battle. And we're thankful now it is just cleanup. He really is making his enemies his footstool. He really is bringing in uh, his church and bringing in his people. And we pray that you would continue to do so. Continue to do that here. If there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. Please give them new life. Uh, We pray that you would uh, continue to strengthen your strong sheep. If there are any wayward sheep, please correct them in the things of you as it pertains to church, as it pertains to life. And we're thankful that you do. We're thankful that you do strengthen us. We're thankful that you do produce in us character and perseverance and hope. And so help us to count it a joy when we face various trials that you do teach us good things and teach us and wean us from this world 
but we're thankful that as we walk this world, as we run this race, we do so by looking to Christ. So help us to continue to look to Christ now. Thank you for this Lord's Supper that is a, um, a sign of what Christ has done for us. Thank you that we feed upon Christ by faith, and we're thankful that we can be nourished by you now in your supper. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ.